0: We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. Last time we saw Jesus pretty much hitting home at what it really means to be a disciple from all angles. And we see the lessons that we can take from that for us today as followers of Christ. Today we're going to see another mission he sends his disciples on and the growth they make this time. The key word is going to be repetition. We saw in chapter 9, and we're going to reference it a little bit in chapter 9 as we go through 10, because he sent the 12 out two by two, and here he sends the 70 out two by two. So probably even much more than that in the time that he was on the earth, he probably sent many people out two by two, a lot of repetition there. But why the repetition? Well, because that's how God designed us, and he knows what makes us tick. We need a repetition and immersion in the things of God to be successful. As a matter of fact, in Joshua chapter 1, God says to meditate on his word, on his ways, on his statutes. He said, and therefore, you will have good success. You will be prosperous. Meditate to continue to go over and over and over to immerse ourselves in the things of God and the word of God. Studies have shown that you know we can develop habits, good habits and bad habits. Habit is basically a neuromuscular conditioning that takes roughly, and studies have proven this, 5,000 to 8,000 repetitions for it to be implanted in our subconscious mind. And it also works in the reverse, breaking a habit. I, have the, I grind my teeth at night. Sometimes I wake up with headaches. So I have this little device. It, put, it goes in my mouth. It's like a bite plate. And I'm supposed to, you know, have it in my mouth all night long. And it keeps my teeth from grinding. It keeps them separated. Uh, and it actually trains the body to break that habit because the teeth can't go down all the way. But the f- interesting thing is on the directions it says to practice this all throughout the day. Mouth closed, teeth apart. Lips closed, teeth apart. First of all, it's hard to get me to close my mouth in the first place. <laughs> but they say that if you continue to you know, focus on it and subconsciously lips closed, teeth apart, eventually you'll break that habit of grinding your teeth at night. So habits for good and for bad. And here we see, obviously, Jesus is trying to develop good habits in his disciples. So let's, let's begin. Verse 1. It says after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. After these things, after what things? Well, the things that occurred in chapter nine. Remember, in the beginning, when the scriptures were written, there were no chapter and verse delineations. They came many years later. So it, you know, you would, it would be a scroll and it would be written in in the Greek and you would read it and it it would continue. So after these things, it's a uh, chronological statement there. The things of the healing of the demon-possessed child, the things of more training that Jesus gives his disciples on self-denial, the uh, things of the rejection of Samaria, okay, and also the true cost of discipleship. And also, the la- one of the last things we see here is that there was a man who wasn't associated with the disciples who gets it, and he's able to cast out a demon. So following that exercise, Jesus responds by rounding up these ancillary followers and puts them to work. A few things here. The numbers. Number one, why 70? Well, it's cool. We can go back to the Old Testament. Some believe that because of Moses' elders, as judges, he had 70 of them to help him with his ministry work. And as a matter of fact, the Sanhedrin in the first century, actually it started centuries before that, had a body of 70 people, the ruling Jewish class. And most likely, they got that number from the Old Testament. And also, uh, there's a, in Genesis 10, there's what we call the table of nations. It corresponds to 70 post-Diluvian nations, which means basically after the flood. After the flood, the people start settling again, started having communities, and you know started reproducing, and they, and they had uh, nations that went out. And there were 70 nations that are recording. Now, I believe that, The biggest thing for the number 70 is actually the latter, the one I just spoke of, because it's a picture of the disciples going into all the world. It's a picture of Gentile inclusion. So there's that harmony between the Old and the New Testament. It also says he says he sent out 70 others also, indicating that these 70 were in addition to the original 12. And as a matter of fact, in Acts chapter one, we see that 120 of them come together. Disciples. And the second thing he says, he sends them out two by two. I don't think this has anything to do with Noah's Ark. But if we go back to the Old Testament, we see that a serious accusation couldn't be brought against anyone unless there were at least two witnesses, two or more witnesses. Uh, So I believe there's an accountability issue here is why he sends them out two by two. And again, in the same in the New Testament, it says that don't bring an accusation against an elder except by two or more witnesses. So peculiarities in the New Testament can often be traced to the Old Testament. I love the harmony of the scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. That's why Calvary chapels are usually very comfortable for Jewish people to come in, because they, we, we, we show the Old Testament foundation. I've actually given some CDs to people that I know who are Jewish, and they love it. You know, they actually enjoy the message. But, and that's also why I want to encourage you to come out on Wednesday nights. You know, start coming out on Wednesday nights, because we're going to start hitting the Old Testament hard and seeing where our foundation is here. Verse 2, it says, Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So he likens being sold out for the Lord and doing his will with the harvesting of a field. I want to turn to John 4, 33-38. John 4, 33-38. It says, therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? This is where Jesus passes through Samaria and he starts to talk to the woman at the well and the disciples, they they go out and then they come back and they want to know, did anybody bring the master some food? And anybody think about it. Uh, But Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. So in this situation, he likens this ripe crop. It's, it's white for the harvest. It was when, the, when certain crops would come up, they would bud and as the, the fruit would come out, the, it would yield a, a white head. They would know that they would to come to with the sickle and, and uh, sickle it and reap that harvest and gather it up. So he likens here fertile hearts, people who are ready for a ripe crop. And he also says, you know, some people were already in the harvest. You know, they were doing the work and you get to reap the rewards of those people who started it. And it's a picture of people. You talk to somebody, you plant a seed about the Lord and you don't think you're getting anywhere. But after five, six, seven times, the eighth person comes and talks to them and they're, they're ready to receive the Lord. And that's what this picture is. They're ready for it. God's laborers, those who don't just uh, listen, but they also do. In the book of James, he says, don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer also. Apply it. In Isaiah 6, God said, who's going to go on this mission for us? Who shall we send? And Isaiah says, send me, I'll go, Lord. You know, whatever you say, Lord, I will be obedient. Same thing with Ezekiel. Who will stand in the gap? The prophet Ezekiel stood in the gap for the Lord. There are very few labors. It was true back then and it's true today. You know, you need... Servants to help in in ministry in the church, and a lot of people's attitude is, ah, somebody else will do it. Someone else will pick it up. Well, if everybody had that attitude, then nobody would do it, right? But churches are filled with people who say they like to give a lot of suggestions, right? But they don't want to get involved. Well, hey, that's a good suggestion. Why don't you get involved? Well, no, I just have the gift of suggestion, you see. You know, I don't really want to do anything, I just want to suggest. So. Serving the church versus serving the Lord. You know, when you serve in ministry, you are serving the Lord. The Lord is not here physically and, and, and bodily flesh for us to do something for him, but he wants us to carry on the work of ministry. That's what he is, he's asked us to do. Verse 3, it says, Jesus says, Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Now, how impossible is that? If you look at Psalm 23, the Psalm of the Divine Shepherd, In Psalm 23, 5, he says, you have set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is a Psalm of David. So picture David. In those days, his enemies weren't people who talked bad about him or made fun of him for being a devout Jew. His enemies had spears and arrows and chariots and, you know, they wanted to hurt him. So here's a picture of David on a, sitting at a table, food prepared for, before him, his cup runs over, all his provisions are there, and his enemies are encamped all around him. And he can sit there and eat that meal without getting agita. Why? Because the Lord was backing him. The thing that separated him from his enemies was the Lord. He was, he was, the Lord was, in a sense, his force field, right? So I think of the term, I don't know if people still use this term, when the, when the mob was big, the mafia. If, if there was somebody, you would say, hey, don't mess with him. He's backed or he's connected, you know, if he's got the backing of the mob. So you don't mess with that guy. But here, in a good sense, we have the backing of the divine shepherd. If our father is backing us, there is nothing that we can't do. And there's nothing that we should be afraid of because we have his backing. Right. You mess with me. You mess with the chief shepherd. So on the flip side. Matthew 10, 16 says that we're to be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Uh, Don't be foolish here. Don't tempt the Lord to keep you safe. I remember uh, years ago I was serving in a ministry. It was a food pantry ministry. And we would go out to all different areas and deliver groceries. And I remember, you know, being a police officer, I observe everything that I see for the most part. And we went in to supposedly deliver food to this woman's house. And there was three young men sitting on the couch. And they didn't do a really good job of hiding the needle in the tourniquet. You know, nobody else saw it, but I did. So I went back to the ministry leader and I said, listen, I understand if you want to help this woman, but uh, I don't think that, look, if these guys can buy drugs, then they can buy food. You know, I don't think we should go back there. And if you are going to go back there, don't send the women. Don't put the women into that situation. And he took my... Uh, advice very well, but we're to be wise as serpents. We're not supposed to go into ridiculously dangerous situations and then tempt the Lord to protect us. We're supposed to use our heads a little bit too. So verse four, he says, carry neither money bag, sack, nor sandals and greet no one along the road. Now we're going to go back a lot. I'm going to, if you, you know, call to your memory, uh, Luke chapter nine. So in Luke chapter nine, three, there's similar instructions here and he reiterates a little bit what he says to the 12. But he adds, don't greet anyone along the road. Now you might say, that's kind of weird. You know, aren't they supposed to be friendly? Why wouldn't they greet anyone along the road? Well, there's a picture here of haste. There's no time to waste in this situation. And the mission is too important to stop on the side of the road and just be sidetracked and just have idle talk. As a matter of fact, it, it doesn't make sense until you actually even understand and study the culture at the time. In those days, I mean, it wasn't like today, we're always running, we always got something to do. You know, we, as soon as we leave church, we got so, you know, something else to do. But in that culture, people had plenty of time to meet each other along the road, you know, have a, a cordial greeting, and then just start talking. And they could talk half the day because there was no hurry in that society. So he's saying, don't greet anyone along the road. This is a mission, an important mission that I've sent you to do. A lot of people waste time when it comes to serving the Lord. God has called us to do certain things and we dilly-dally. We know God has asked us to do something. We know he's given us gifts and he wants a return on that investment. He's asked us to do things and we just take our time. We dilly-dally, we play around, we say, I'll get to it, and sometimes it never happens. But we have to focus. We have to really focus on what the Lord has asked us to do and be diligent uh, with his talents. So... Doing the Lord's will also is an exercise in the spirit, just like I spoke about a few Sundays ago with prayer. Prayer is an exercise in the spirit. That's why when you try to do it, the, the part of you that's still sinful thinks about, you know, my stomach is rumbling. I could go for a glass of water. I, I really need to call that person. And you think of all the things that you have to do for that day, and you want to start writing it down before you forget And, you know, Satan will call to mind all the things that you need to do when you're trying to pray. It's the same thing with doing anything with the Lord. It's an exercise in the spirit. And it really takes uh, focus and it takes diligence to complete that. Verse five, he says, but whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. Now, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 20, excuse me. There was the law of warfare. If you had to come against a city, if you had to besiege a city, you would go first and offer peace to the city. Listen, we really don't want to hurt anybody. Um, You know, the Lord, of course, has called us to take the city. Uh, But if you come along peacefully, basically you could be a vassal of us. You could pay tribute. Nobody will be harmed. And, you know, we'll, we'll take over the city. But if they refused, God said to make war against that city. So it was, you know, no holds barred. You know, whatever whatever you had to do, you had to do to take that city. But what we're talking about here isn't, it's not warfare, it's not a physical warfare, but it's actually spiritual warfare. You're coming into Satan's domain, and you are trying to take that domain because the Lord has called you to take it. So you have to look at it a little bit differently. Now, the common Jewish greeting at the time was Shalom. You would meet somebody and say Shalom, and the person would say Shalom. And Shalom in the Hebrew means peace. You would... It was almost like you were praying for peace for that person. You know, you come in peace. Those were your terms. So how did they have the, the power, the disciples, to give peace and take back peace? You know, it sounds a little odd. Some have erroneously suggested, and they lump it in with Jesus speaking of binding and loosing, right? And we, I think we've covered that. And also to forgive and retain sins. And people get confused about that. Uh, this giving and taking of peace, they feel, is kind of similar to that. And basically, they feel it was some type of power that was conferred to the disciples, some great magical power, which really led to false doctrines. Two of them I want to cover is one is is I think about the apostolic succession. Uh, Some people believe that actually from the lineage of disciples, if you follow the lineage of the disciples through the centuries, you could trace their bloodline, and actually the the people now are in the churches. So there's like a a lineage of apostles. Well, in reality, that's not true because, and actually, especially with the Pope, you know, with the papacy, the Pope's seat, it's not true because the papacy, if you even look into Vatican archives, the papacy has been bought, it's been sold, it's been stolen, it's been, you know, uh, taken over by force. So all, all the popes were not necessarily related to each other. The other thing is papal infallibility was another false doctrine that was brought up. And that said that basically, you know, Peter was the first Pope and, through the succession of popes, when these men spoke ex cathedra meaning in the Latin, uh, meaning about spiritual issues, they could not be wrong. They would always speak and they could never make a mistake. Well, Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And also in Galatians 2 and in Acts chapter 1, which we're going to hit Acts uh, in a few months, is Peter makes a lot of errors, even af- after the resurrection you know Peter is is one of the the, the 12 disciples who uh, the 11 plus Paul later who start the church and Peter makes some pretty serious errors and in Galatians 2 Paul has to rebuke him for that error so even if you look at scripture Peter if that's the mentality of the succession of the popes Peter made a lot of mistakes and also so the question is what brings true peace how can the disciples give and retain peace so that's the question that begs here in this part of the scripture well what brings true, true peace is, number one, the gospel and the message of the cross. First Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to we who are being saved it is the power of God. And Romans 5.1 basically tells us that through Jesus Christ we have peace through God because we know that we are children of darkness until we actually are born again. We have that enmity with God. There's a constant struggle between him and us. And now when we believe on Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, now there's a ceasefire. The war is over and we have peace with God. And now we have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. So it's very simple. There's, there's not a whole theological thing through this. It's you reject the message, you reject peace. So in a sense, if the disciples came to bring peace to a village and they come to a home and they explain the way of salvation, the people, ah, eh, I don't care. I'm not interested. And they reject it. That peace never gets conferred onto those people. It, it, it just stays with the disciples and keeps going because they don't accept the message of salvation. So it's that simple. People who will have a lot of Jesus have a lot of peace. I have to um, pick on very nicely one of my good friends. Last Sunday after service, I found that one of my friends had thrown his back out. And uh, poor guy was home, couldn't make it to church. You know, he was laid up for a while, probably couldn't play with his kids, couldn't go to work. It just was a, you know, a rough thing for him. And I ended up calling him, and, you know, yeah, there's that frustration. You know, you can't do anything. You know, he's a young guy. He thinks he's still 25, but he's not. But, you know, he just was praising the Lord, and we had a great discussion about the Lord, and he's a genuine guy. But the thing is, no matter what goes wrong, the man still emulates Christ. You know, he looks past his physical circumstances, and he still exemplifies Christ. So people who have a lot of Jesus have a lot of peace, regardless of the situation. And if you don't have peace, you know, uh, try Jesus, you know, try to check it out. But verse seven, it says this, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house, whatever city you enter and they receive you eat such things that are set before you. Again, this is also a reiteration of Luke nine, four that we covered a few Sundays back, but Don't put on an air of false piety. Hey, guys, you have an important job. The laborer is worthy of his wages. If these people want to support you, let them. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 9.14, Paul says, Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So, it's, it's a way to make a, a living. If that's what you just, is that the only thing that you do? You're doing something very important. You should be able to make a living like that. Now, in Paul's situation, he did not. He chose to continue to go back to his trade of tent making to support himself. And there were some reasons for that. He didn't want to stumble those people because in that time, there was a lot of traveling philosophers and they would come by and they would make merchandise of the people. They would come through town and pretend that they had a word from God or they had this great philosophy that people had and they would expect to, to make money off of it. They didn't care about those people. That wasn't their flock. And then when they were done in that city, they would move on to another city and this is how they made their living. Again, not caring about any fruit from there, not caring about the people, but just trying to make money off the people. And Paul was just making sure that they knew when he went through those areas that he actually loved them and was doing it for their own good. He wasn't trying to make any money off of them. So Paul chose not to do that, but he does make a point here. And you know, some people have trouble with um, taking gifts. You know, if somebody feels obligated to do something for you, let them do it. If they, I mean, if they don't feel obligated, let them do it. If they're doing it out of love, accept the gift. Sometimes people have a hard time, you know, accepting gifts from people. It could be taken as an insult otherwise. And you know what? On that note, some people have a hard time accepting compliments. If somebody truly cares about you and they're trying to encourage you, accept the compliment. You know, don't say no, no. Just say thank you, you know. But, and then he, gives, he says, he talks about going from house to house. Again, we talked about, uh, when we were in chapter 9, Middle Eastern hospitality. Uh, it, w- it would have been an insult to go to somebody's house and then leave to go to somebody else's house for a few reasons. Number one, they might not feel worthy that you stay in their house. They might feel insulted that you left their house. And if you're going from house to house looking for better provisions, then you, you, you could definitely insult that village and they might not want you to stay there. Verse nine, it says, And heal the sick who are there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Command to heal. He's commanding them to heal the sick. James 4.17 says that to him who knows to do good, he he has has the ability, he knows to do good, and he doesn't do that, to him it is sin. We keep thinking of the sins of commission. Don't commit adultery, don't covet, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder. But there's also sins of omission. If you can do something to bless somebody, and the Lord has definitely put you in that path to to love somebody, and you don't, that's a sin, it's a sin of omission. As a matter of fact, the sins of omission a lot of times lead to the sins of commission. That omission leads to apathy. It's that slippery slope. Eh, you just don't feel like it. Eh, I don't feel like picking up my Bible. Eh, I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like doing something nice with somebody. And you just, you go down that slope. Now you're not being fed. You're not being built up. And then it leads to actual sins of commission. That's my opinion. But you see the word and deed uh, working together again. You see that the miraculous deeds are backing up and going hand in hand with his words. The miraculous deeds are not supposed to be the focus, but they are sort of like that signet ring. In the old days, they would have these scrolls. The king would send out a decree, and he would write on a scroll, and he would roll it up. And then where the edge of the scroll met, the body of the scroll, they would take wax and drip it to seal it, to close the paper. And then the king would have a special ring, a metal ring with a design in it, uh, indigenous to his particular monarchy, his dynasty. And he would take that ring while the wax was still wet and put it in there and remove it. So when the wax hardened and sealed the document, you would see the, the mark of that kingdom and you would know that that came from the kingdom. So in a sense, anybody could, could say things, people could talk. And there was plenty of false messiahs that had come up before Jesus. But in this situation... They would speak about the kingdom of God, and the signet ring, the the mark of that approval, was actually the miraculous deeds that God had given them. Verse 10. He says, But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Again, a reiteration in Luke 9, 5. And we spoke about the last time when he sent out the 12 in teams of two, when if they weren't received, when they left the town, they would take off their sandals and clap their sandals together and get the dust off of that sandals as a picture of, you know, even, we're not even going to retain the dust of this city. It's not, it's not worthy. But, you know, they got fair warning, these people. Fair warning, last chance. You're pushing the way of salvation from you, you know. And this is what they're telling them. Remember, the disciples were ambassadors from God's kingdom. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Starting in verse 18. 2 Corinthians five eighteen. Paul says, Now all things are of God. Who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So when we believe in Jesus, not only are we reconciled to God, but now we get the benefit of having that ministry of reconciliation to others. It's part of our jobs as Christians. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the word, the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Isn't that amazing? What does an ambassador do? An ambassador is sent from a country, good or bad, and he doesn't have really the decision to make foreign policy. When he goes to another kingdom, his word, he's the mouthpiece of that king or that president or that ruling body of that country that he's coming from. An ambassador speaks for the nation that he represents, not of his own words. And this is amazing. He says, as though God were pleading through us. Imagine that. God has given us such a precious gift of the gospel that God is actually pleading through us when we speak to other people who are in darkness. Isn't that an amazing thing, that God has given us that incredible ministry? And then it says, for he made him, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we're ambassadors and the people that we speak to, they will be accountable for their rejection. They will definitely be accountable for their rejection of of the word. And it's no different with us, you know. And what do we say we talk about salvation, we're those ambassadors, and sometimes people are afraid to say, people say, Well, what happens if I don't believe? or what happens if I reject it? Hey, it's part of the gospel message. Because if we're saved, what are we saved from? We're saved from eternal separation. we're we're saved from eternal torment you know we're saved from uh, all these horrible things and sometimes you know hell's got to be mentioned if they want to know they got to know because there's no sense in being saved or have salvation if we don't know what we're saved from right verse 12 he says but i say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for sodom than for that city now sodom and sodom and gomorrah everybody's heard and Also in the Torah, it speaks about two other cities. It was Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim. And they were basically cities on the the, uh, coast of of the Dead Sea. Uh, And these cities were judged for their wickedness. Now, in Sodom's instance, they were, you know, fire and brimstone came down. And there was no prophet, but they were judged for their wickedness anyway. However, the cities that Jesus mentions here, you know, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, they had no excuse because they had Jesus. So it would actually be more tolerable. It's amazing. You know, the Bible does speak about it, and we get a glimpse of it, of, of, of judgment in the end, the great white throne judgment. Uh, we get a, a glimpse of these things, and we don't understand the full picture. But it does appear that there will be different degrees of punishment. Jesus said if somebody hurts a, a child or a little one or a babe in Christ, uh, you know, people who are innocent... He said it would be better for them for a millstone to be cast around their neck and thrown into the sea than, to, you know, than to hurt these, these little kids. So their judgment is going to be pretty heavy. Now, here, these cities, Sodom is going to be judged as a city, as a people in general. But some of these other cities that actually had Jesus are going to be judged more harshly. Why? Because they received more light in the form of spiritual truth. Now, my question to us is, uh, where do you think America fits into this? You know, There's people who have, I guess, mitigating circumstances. If you live in a country where Christianity is illegal and you've never seen a Bible and, you know, you've never heard the gospel. There's some countries that go so far as to it's like a little game of cat and mouse on the border of like Iran or some of these really oppressive countries. You know, the Christians right on the border, maybe a more friendlier country will send out uh, radio signals. And so the people in Iran could pick up the radio station, the Christian radio, and the government will actually jam the signal. They are so terrified of the gospel getting into their country. It's definitely a spiritual warfare. Don't they have better things to do than, like, you know, make nukes and shoot them at us, than to jam the signals of Christians, of their, you know, the airwaves coming into their country? It's pretty amazing. So the question is, with America, with all the Jesus, you know, we have Bibles, there's Christian books. You can't go anywhere, you know. The, the truckers have the, the Jesus saves, the Christian truckers across the sides of their trucks, crucifixes everywhere. How could you not know who Jesus is living in this country unless you live in a remote area? So I think that America, and people have said this, will certainly be judged by our decadence and our downward slope in rejecting the message of salvation. So on Judgment Day, you know, people who tell you and lay out a clear version of the, of the message of salvation can be your worst enemy if you reject it, because you have no excuse now when you go before God, but they could also be your best friend if you receive that and you 're ushered into the kingdom of heaven you can 't say lord i didn 't know there 's a, a family friend of ours a few weeks back we went to a function, and we would have great discussions with her she's a uh, she 's an atheist and very smart woman knows a lot about science and you know, we would just, she would ask us questions and, and she would postulate things and we would go back and forth in an amicable way. And every time we saw each other, we would we would go back and forth. But it got to the point where she said, in a nice way, she goes, you know what, I don't want to talk about it anymore. You know, let's just never discuss this again. And I have to respect her wishes. But I got to tell you, on the drive home, my heart was really burdened. It really bothered me. I told my wife, I said, I'm picturing her in hell. You know, I don't, unless something really tragic happens to her and the Lord really gets her... Attention in a miraculous way. I don't see any difference. You know, her heart is completely hardened. And you know, my my my, we've known this woman our whole life. She's she's like part of the family. So it's really grievous when you have to think about that. And the the thing is, we we have to pray for her continually. Pray for this person. It's, It's a heavy thing to have to to have to think about. But in this section, again, to wrap up this section, the disciples get their marching orders. They have their objective. Jesus gives them their objective. He gives them their provisions and their spiritual provisions that they're supposed to rely on. He tells them what their behavior is supposed to be like. You can't leave out behavior. You know, if they started acting like drunken sailors, (laughs) you know, let's go into the village, uh, who's going to receive that message? Behavior is very, very important. It's got to go with the rest of them. And he gives them the message. This is the message that I want you to give, and this is the way of salvation, and he sends them on their marching orders. You know, the instruction is found in the Word. I'm amazed at people who talk such a good talk about the scripture or about the Bible, about God, but they, they admittedly never read the scriptures. Hebrews one one two 2 tells us this. It says, God who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds. So it's like Jesus is speaking to us. He's speaking to us through the word and jesus was the word of god so the word of god is is something that we've got to be well versed in you can't really uh divorce walking living a christian life and reading the bible you can't divorce that and i'm not going to be legalistic and say you got to read five chapters every day you know we all things happen in our lives and we wane at times but we you know, it's not that God looks down on us and says, Why, well, I'm so pleased today. You're making me so happy, and I'm going to bless you. It's about a relationship. It actually is for our benefit. The blessing comes through us when we learn about Him and we have that relationship with Him. Verse 13 it says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a great while ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Chorazin, Bethsaida, again, these were also northern shore cities on the Sea of Galilee. They received a lot of light in the form of spiritual truth. Jesus did a lot in that area. Well, who was Tyre and Sidon? If you're familiar with with the map of the Middle East, they were Phoenician cities along the Mediterranean, north of Israel. They were wicked, they were prideful, and they were cruel. As a matter of fact, in Ezekiel 26... It's, it's amazing. Several centuries before this happens, the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel prophesies the, the, the humbling of this area of, of, of Tyre. Now, Tyre, again, was on the coast of the Mediterranean, but there was a little island that was about a half a mile from the shore, and their island had walled city. It was walled. And what they did was, if they were being attacked, they would get a lot of people to go quickly into that island and get behind the walled cities. It was almost impossible for people now to get to these uh, to that to that little island because of the high walls and the water, which was a natural buffer. Anytime anyone came close, the, the tyrants would attack them, and nobody was really successful in, in uh, you know getting through that city. So they were very proud. They're like nobody can touch us. We're untouchable. But the interesting thing is Ezekiel 26 prophesies uh, a time when they would be attacked, and that the uh, ruler would basically. The ruler would build like a siege mound and attack them and and humble them. And somebody reading that prophecy would be like, that's ridiculous, that's stupid. Well, several centuries later, Alexander the Great was a very stubborn man, very uh, determined. He was going to take them. You know, he did what he had to do to the coastal city, and then he sent his troops and it took many months. They would put rocks and debris into the water and they would make two like islands, like man-made islands that got closer and closer to the walled city and when they got close enough, they attacked and they actually knocked down the wall. They, They slaughtered many of the inhabitants and Alexander the Great took that city What seemed to be impossible was possible, and it was prophesied in Ezekiel 26. The word of God is amazing. Nobody would have ever... See, God takes these prophecies that are bizarre, that are outlandish. People say, that could never happen. That's the beauty of God's word. He says, he takes something that the odds are like millions to one, and he makes them come true. That's the beauty of God's word. So uh, the Tyrians had a uh, physical humbling, but now there's going to be a spiritual judgment. There's going to to come a time, an account, where they're going to have to face the music spiritually. But it's also going to be easier for them in the judgment again than Chorazin, Bethsaida, and especially Capernaum, which seemed to be Jesus' home base for his ministry. So it's, it's pretty heavy there. Verse 15, it says, And you, Capernaum, who were exalted to heaven... Will, will be thrust down to Hades. Now, some manuscripts, you know, have I have the, the study Bible, which has all the manuscripts, but they basically, uh, there's just subtle nuances here and there. There's really, it's, it's the harmony is there. It's not a big deal. But some manuscripts have this in a form of a question. Will you be, it's a question Jesus asked them, will you be exalted to heaven? So again, Capernaum was the home base. He did a lot of great things there, but they're going to face judgment for the rejection of Christ, their wholesale rejection of him. Now, as much as God is loving, patient, merciful, and forgiving, he's also a God of judgment, and he's also a God of punishment. And he, he can be both. He is both, without any contradiction there. And basically, the, the part of him that you, you see is determined... It's your choice determines the part of him that you see. It determines where you're going to spend eternity. You decide which side you want to fall on. Do you want to fall on the side of a, a protective father... Do you want to fall on the side of a protective father who who, uh, is like a bear because somebody's attacking his children and he has to fight and he has to attack because he has to protect? Or do you want to fall on the side of a loving father in a time of peace? You come up to him and you crawl into his lap and say, Daddy, read me a bedtime story. You know, that's basically what we're looking at with God. And we determine the terms. Isn't that amazing? We get to set the terms of how we want to be involved with our father in heaven. So it's our choice here. Verse 16, he who hears you hears me, he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. These these disciples were a direct line to the Father, from the Father's lips to your ears via the disciples. They were that conduit line. Again, in this block, these guys are ambassadors, these disciples. How important of a job is that to be an ambassador? And we kind of take that a little lightly sometimes, I believe. But think about Moses. Remember Moses the first time when the children of Israel said we need water. God said strike the rock and Moses struck the rock and water gushed out and fed like over a million people in the desert. Amazing provision, right? That was a picture of Christ. The rock was struck the first time he was smitten for our sins. The second time the people said we need water, living water, everlasting life, you know, the torrents of living water that Jesus spoke about. God said to Moses, now this time, speak to the rock. And the children of Israel were grumbling and complaining I can't believe, all the time. you sent us here from Israel. We could have been drinking water and you know, building mud bricks and the whole deal. And we need water. We're thirsty. And Moses got frustrated with them. He goes, you want water? I'll give you water. And he takes the staff and he hits the rock again. Water, you know, the torrents of water came out. And you think that was over? When it was all over, God said to Moses, hey, I've got to talk to you. He was supposed to speak to the rock the second time. Now, what that signified was Jesus was already struck once. The second time is, you know, the, again, you have peace with God. There's the reconciliation. The second time, he was supposed to speak to the rock. Because after Jesus was struck and, and smitten for our sins, any time after that, we just speak to him. The lines of communication are over. So what am I saying here? Moses, big time, misrepresented God. God's like, I wasn't angry with them. You know, you were angry with them, and you weren't supposed to strike the rock. So when you're an ambassador for the Lord, man, that's a, we really need to hold that in a higher esteem. So how do we represent God? And how much damage control must be done after somebody is a poor representation of God? And you see poor representations of God all the time. And sometimes you go to talk to somebody about the Lord, and they tell you about a family member who's done this and that and is a hypocrite, and you've got to you gotta get through all the mud you know, to get them the gospel message because they see this ambassador as ambassador a poor ambassador. The, let's see, a few nights ago, see, three, three nights ago, it was my last night in on my, on my patrol tour. It was late. I was tired and I was cranky. And um, I got called to a 911 call. 911 call at such and such location. Oh, all these false 911 calls, we get them all the time. So I'm driving to the call, I get out. smile, hello, go into the house. Well, apparently it wasn't false. It was a little family dispute, and there was a teen involved. So I just handled it with compassion. I talked to the father and the mother and the teen, and I did some mediation, and everybody was happy when I left. So I said, uh, you know, have a nice day, folks, and God bless you. And as I was walking out, I heard somebody say, hey, aren't you the pastor? And I was, like, stunned. I turned around, and the father said that. And I'm thinking, I don't recognize this guy. You know, I would recognize one of you if I saw you there. So he's... He basically said, um, you know, we went there one Sunday and, you know, his, it was an issue with uh, you know, somebody who was handicapped and they were having trouble. Uh, and we, I guess we didn't, the seats, we didn't have the accommodations, but he enjoyed the service. So we got to talking, right? But what, I, what the point I'm trying to make is that, look, it was a remote area of town. He probably didn't know a lot of people because it was very, you know, your neighbor was like half a mile down the road. And, you know, if I would have been a jerk or an uncaring jerk, um, who would have known, you know? But the thing is, I, I, I try to overcome my own personal feelings at the time and just try to handle the call of compassion. Who am I? I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor, for heaven's sake, right? So the question is, what is our representation? You know, it would have been an awful thing if I would have been cranky and I would have let that come through. And he would have said, aren't you the pastor? You know, so it all worked out well. But we always have to see wherever we go, it doesn't matter if we're at the pumps it doesn't matter if we're at the supermarket. It doesn't matter where we are. We're ambassadors of Christ. See, we have a 24-7 job. We don't cease being ambassadors for Christ. And That's something that we have to realize and, and always ask ourselves, what is our representation to him? So in, in the next few verses, we see the return of the 70, just like we saw in chapter 9. Chapter 9, they come back. In chapter 10, the 70 come back, right? Verse 17 then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They were probably, like, totally excited. Lord, demons, you know, they, they listened to us. They were, like, so, you know, pumped up. In, in chapter 9, we saw the 12 had some trouble, um, or you know, a few verses back, the 12 had some trouble, the 9 had some trouble. Here, these particular guys are giddy about it. You know, they're just really excited. And, and let me tell you what happened with me, and, and, and let me tell you my story. They're probably, like, bombarding him. Verse 18, it says, And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing by any means shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, a little background. Verse, uh, Revelation chapter 12 and Isaiah chapter 14 both speak about the rise and the fall of Satan. You know, what, what did he do? What was the reason why he was cast down? You know, he, he drew a third of the stars with him and you know, he led the rebellion, all that kind of stuff. So we get a picture of who Satan is. So Satan is obviously real because it's all over the scripture, Old and New Testament. And he was cast down from God's presence because of pride and rebellion, like lightning. Well, what is, what's the characteristics of lightning? It's hard and a fast fall. So Satan went down like lightning. It must have been an amazing sight. But God didn't waste any time in removing sin from his presence. You know, today people have this, because we're so modernized. You know, everything's so easy for us, and even you know, the Bible's easy for us, and you can find anything on the Internet. People just think that, that they're going to hang with God. You know... It's okay. I don't, the Jesus thing, I don't need it. You know, when I see God, I'm going to say, hey, look, look at all the good works I did. People think that they're just going to hang with God. And he's like not serious about sin. He's got no problem with it. And he's just going to say, hey, you know, it's cool. You know, no problem. People don't realize who they're dealing with when they're dealing with the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth and everything here. Uh, the only thing that saves us from his righteous wrath is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's it. And that's it. In verse 19, we're also not to... You see these things about the snakes and the scorpions. Now, it's amazing how people take some stuff out of context. And you, you see some of these kooky practices. You go to some... There was a thing on the news where they had a big snake tank, one of these churches. <laughs> and they had all these snakes, you know, writhing around. And they were picking them up and praising the Lord and holding the snakes. What's up with that? That's just totally weird. Listen, don't bring any snakes here, okay? I'm going to have to show you the door. School will kick us out. But you know, that's not what it's all about. It's a picture of when God calls us to his service, he will provide, he will protect, he will open doors, and he will give us power. But not for ourselves, but to glorify him. Look at the case of Samson. You know, sometimes I think the, the story of Samson is glorified. They always, you know, the story of Samson with the kids, they, they have a drawing of this guy who's really jacked. I mean, he's got these big shoulders, big biceps, you know, this big guy. First of all, Samson may not have had to be big. Don't you think that God could have made Samson strong without all those muscles? It was a supernatural power that God gave Samson. And people like, it's almost a glorification of that story. But where did Samson end up blind in captivity and ultimately dead? So we don't want to be like Samson. You know what I'm saying? It's not a good place to be. It's not a good place, right? Picture Samson with those pillars, I'm not in a good place, Lord. He probably wanted to die after everything that happened to him. But the problem with Samson was he glorified himself. He used his strength to do all kinds of crazy stuff. He probably started his own freak show. I don't know. But the thing is, he didn't glorify God. He glorified himself. And that's not where we want to be. We, we don't want to steal God's glory. So... A little bit about the serpents and the scorpions, and I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I believe it's basically how God protects us. We could look at the serpents and make the allusion to Satan. He's the great serpent, the fiery dragon. In Revelation 9, you have a picture of these de- demonic entities that come up and have qualities of scorpions. So we could say it's a picture of the underworld. You could see exorcisms in this, but macrocosmically, basically, God has the power over all the forces of the dark kingdom, okay? It's a done deal. Good wins over evil. And we don't see the full benefit of it now, but the fact is, in the end, God wins. And, you know, again, it's a picture of, it, it's. they're seeing something that they've never seen before. Wow, we could cast out demons. It's amazing. But, you know, God will provide for you. God will protect you. And it's, it's a you know, a triumph of good over evil. Don't rejoice in the power, but rejoice in that your names are written in heaven in the book of life. Is that our attitude? You know, that... What is our attitude? Is it that we rejoice that our names are in heaven? I, I hope so. What makes us tick? Is it the kingdom of heaven or the accidental, accidental features therein? The bennies, you know, the kingdom of heaven, good retirement plan. Or is it that our names are written in heaven? Is it that we have fellowship with God? We, we all have a list about things that what we think makes us happy. And over the years, that list changes, to be honest with you. What, what really excited you 20 years ago today, that's stupid, right? When I was a teen, I just wanted to bench press over 200 pounds. And then when I did it, I was so excited. And then when I was in my 20s, it was over 300. And then I was excited, right? Now, if I try to do that, I'd probably break something. So it doesn't really matter to me anymore. There's no eternal value of that. I mean, same thing about being a policeman. I wanted to be a cop so bad, I would have taken no pay for the first year. You believe I said foolish things like that? Novelty wears off. Your first house, your first car, the new car smell, Right? Where is it now? Yada, yada, yada. It's, it's nowhere. You know, when I made my first million, okay, so you, so you know me well, right? Come on, my wife dresses me with Target mix and match. So I, I'm not, I didn't make my first million. But the thing is, what we keep striving and striving and striving. It's like those little hamsters on the wheel. You know, we give it to our kids and we think that they're stupid because they go around in the wheel. But we could be like that sometimes, you know. The hamster's probably laughing at us. So the, the, the thing is, it's only eternal things that will satisfy here. And here the goal is that Jesus said, listen, it's not about seeing demons fall from the sky or seeing them exorcised. It's not a focus on ourself or the glorification of ourself. It's not to find some new pet doctrine. People have to find pet doctrines in everything, obscure doctrines and make a whole church out of it and start a whole thing out of pet doctrines. It's not what it's about um, because y- you've got to take your, your focus off yourself and put your focus on God. That's what it's all about. Verse 21, it says, In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. We spoke of babes, children last Sunday, and the heart aspect of it, which was the biggest aspect of being as a child, right? In Luke 9, Jesus drums into their head to be humble like children. Well, here, he's rejoicing in the fruit of the harvest because people are starting to get it. You know, the the ones who are like babes uh, are getting the message of the gospel. His disciples are going out and doing a good job. So, you know, he's he's really rejoicing over this. Verse 22. It says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and the one to whom... The son wills to reveal him. And then John 12, 32, Jesus says, you know, if I am lifted up, I draw all peoples to to myself. So this is a picture of oneness with the father and Jesus as a conduit to the father. And if you you get nothing else, understand that you can't have fellowship with the father without understanding who the son is. There's no bypass system. You can't bypass the Lord Jesus and who he is and get to the father. It just doesn't work, you know. Jesus did something that, you know, if 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 we could just live by good works, then 2,000 years ago, Jesus wasted his time. He wasted all that time going to the cross. So, again, can't be with the Father, can't have fellowship with the Father unless you go through the Son. In verse 23, it says, And he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it. And to hear what you hear and have not heard it. If you're taking notes, First 1 Peter 1, 10 through twelve really uh, exemplifies this. First 1 Peter 1, 10 through twelve, the prophets of God and the good kings uh, had the will of God revealed to them in small puzzle pieces, and you know, piece here, a corner there, an end here, all throughout the centuries. And it wasn't through it wasn't until Jesus came and He revealed all those mysteries that it really people start to see the full picture. So when we look in the Old Testament and, and think that, you know, I'm sure Moses, Moses pled with God. He was like, God, I'm sorry, let me go into the promised land. No, you, str- you struck the rock twice. You misrepresented me. Moses, if, probably if he knew the whole picture, he probably would have said, I get it. <laughs> I'm not going to go in, no problem. You know, it, it's, it's a done deal. But now we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of the, the scriptures sealed, all in harmony with each other, and the whole picture is revealed to us. So the disciples had a mission of repetition and reliance on his provisions. And for us, it translates to us into same thing, immersion and reliance, that repetition. They had a sense of urgency as the Lord was going to depart soon. What's our sense of urgency? That the Lord's going to come back soon. Same thing, a little bit different, but it's the same thing. You know, their focus was not on themselves, but to glorify Jesus, to rejoice in their salvation and to disseminate the way of salvation. And you know what? It's the same for us. We, we need to rejoice that our names are written in heaven. We need to, you know, do what the Lord has called us to do and disseminate the way of salvation. So, you know, my hope is that we can learn from their experiences.